If you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, um, we're just going to cover a small section today, so our whole service will be abbreviated in, in a sense, um, so hopefully I won't take up a full hour of your time preaching. Um, but looking forward to this passage in particular. Um, so Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11, is where we will be today um, in this parable. Two things that we're going to see today, two ways to kind of break up this text and understanding it, seeing it, are, of course, I had to do some sort of alliteration or two words that even sound similar, begin in similar ways, is two ways to understand this text, the expectation and the excuse. The expectation and the excuse. We're going to see a couple different expectations, really, and we're going to see one pretty major excuse. And we're going to look at the text, and then what I hope to do this morning is kind of go through the text and see it for what it is, and then also kind of go back and revisit this parable and see it for what we can gather from it. So kind of what Luke, why he wrote it, why Jesus said it, and then how that comes back to us. And so we might kind of go through it a couple times this morning, but it will be quick as far as I've anticipated. So um, an expectation and an excuse. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. I'll read the whole parable, which goes through verse 27. It says, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten, ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. If you haven't read this before, it can seem quite strange. And so let me 
give us a little bit of background and understanding as to where this is coming from, why this parable is important, why it's placed here in Luke chapter 19. All throughout this gospel, and really if you just take the Old Testament as a whole, it wasn't very long into creation, just Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world. And so from that point, it has been a problem. It's our separation from God, our lack of full and right relationship to Him, has been an issue. And so God, even from Genesis chapter 3, we see that God had a plan to make things right again. And what happens is, as you read the Bible, as you read history, as you read Luke's gospel, you see that there has been this buildup, this anticipation of this king, of this one who will come and one day crush the enemy, who will set up and establish this kingdom that will never end. And so this is what we're looking forward to, this time what we had for just like a chapter in Genesis where everything was good and right and wonderful between God and man, between God and creation, between man and creation. All things were good and wonderful. This is what we're trying to get back to. And so what God did is he set up this plan. He knew this plan. This plan was not new to him. This wasn't some curveball that was thrown at him as if he had no idea what was going on. And he said, I'm going to choose this one man in Genesis chapter 12. Actually, we learn about him in Genesis chapter 11. And then Genesis chapter 12, okay, so still at the very beginning, we have Abraham or Abram. And God says, from you, I'm going to make a great nation. And from you are going to come many nations, really, and I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to everyone else. So that you and your offspring will be a blessing to all people. And so Abraham's offspring, the legitimate physical offspring of Abraham, the Jews, Israel, have been waiting and waiting for a king who does not fail. They have been waiting for a leader to come to lead them into a perfect and right relationship with God, both physically and spiritually. We see throughout the Old Testament that there have been some good kings and some bad kings. There have been good things happen and bad things happen to the people of Israel. But throughout all of it, there's always been a letdown. There's always been a disappointment. There's always been still a need for hope. Because everything that they desire to have come to pass has not come to pass. Everything that has been promised to them by God has not fully come to pass yet, has not fully been realized. And so they are still waiting. And this is where it leads into Luke's gospel, where we have Jesus come on the scene. And all these promises are given. Even in Luke chapter 1, these prophecies are made of Jesus from the beginning of Luke's gospel. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, chapter 1, verse 68. I'll read a few verses of his prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people 
and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is some of what we, even in Luke's gospel, have been told to look forward to. And so Jesus has come on the scene. He's grown up. He's shown himself to be the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, the Son of Man. He's done these miracles. He's proved himself. He's taught. And now, as he gets as close to Jerusalem as he can before he actually enters Jerusalem, which is the next part. Like if you look at, you know, your headings in your Bible, the next one is the triumphal entry. He's entering into Jerusalem. And I've mentioned, mentioned this explicitly the last few weeks. We have been on a journey to Jerusalem from chapter 9 in Luke's gospel all the way till now in chapter 19. Jesus has been journeying toward Jerusalem. And what people are thinking as Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem is that Jesus is going to then set up the kingdom that will never end. He is going to set up the kingdom that they have been waiting for, that they've been anticipating that they have been promised that they will no longer be at the mercy of their enemies, that they will be put in a position where they are who God has promised them they would be. And so as we begin in this parable, Luke, again, one reason why I really like Luke, he's very orderly and he tells you what he's doing half the time. Verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. This whole section from Luke chapter 17 up through now in this parable has been talk of when can we expect the kingdom of God to appear? When will the kingdom of God fully come? And even from the beginning, the second half of Luke chapter 17, Luke has made it clear to us by the stories that he's given us, by the parables that he's given us, that the kingdom is not going to appear as we might expect it to. It's not going to fully come into being. And this is where the expectation is. This is the people's expectation. He was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So they thought in the next few verses, starting in verse 28, whenever Jesus begins to enter Jerusalem, that the kingdom of God would then begin to appear immediately. And it would be for all to see that there would be no questions, no doubts, that the Romans would be overthrown, that no longer would they have tax collectors like Zacchaeus. But they would have a king who was a good king, a righteous king, a king whose reign and rule would never end. But Luke again gives us the hint. The people's expectation is not correct. 
But can't you feel for them? I mean, these are people who are under the rule of another nation. They're in the middle of their own land that has been occupied by enemy forces. They have to give money to people who kill them, who hate them, who despise them, who look down on them. And so they're wanting something. They're looking for something to have hope in. Their expectation, I mean, is admirable. I'm not sure I would be in any different mindset than they were. But throughout chapter 18, the beginning of chapter 19, the end of chapter 17, Jesus and Luke, through Jesus' stories and encounters, has been trying to let us know that the kingdom that is going on now is not the kingdom that we've expected. But then we also see a second expectation. So as Jesus tells this parable, and note that the nobleman in the story is basically Jesus. He is telling this story talking about himself just in parable form. This is what he says in verse 12. Read it again. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So even from the beginning, he's trying to let the disciples, let the crowd know, whoever's listening to this parable, Luke is trying to let his readers in on a clue that if you think that now... In Luke chapter 19, that Jesus is going to set up his kingdom immediately, visibly for all to see, that's not exactly how it's going to go. What's going to happen is he's going to have to go off, far away, to receive the kingdom, and then he's going to return. So already we're kind of given a little bit of a letdown. And here comes the king's expectation, the nobleman's expectation, really. Verse 13, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. So he gives them a clear expectation. He doesn't tell them to do something without giving them the provision that they need to be able to do it. But he tells them to engage in business. He makes it clear. When you read through this, I mean, you might kind of think, well, what business are they supposed to engage in? It's just assumed as part of this parable that they would know what they're supposed to be doing. The regular everyday stuff that someone in this time would expect. You're given a mina. A mina is three months worth of wages. So it's not like you're given a day's worth of ration and said, oh, hey, figure out how to live on this until I come back. I mean, they're given three months worth to live on, but they're given it at one time, which means... They should be able to invest in something. They don't have to use it all at once for themselves to survive that week. They can use some for that week, but then they have some money left over to go venture out into the business world and to invest, to get back some money to earn something. So this would not be that unusual for them. It's like someone giving you, I don't know, $10,000 and saying, here, do something positive with this and then, you know, like, I'm going to expect some return on it. 
But someone gives you their money and says, here, make, make something worthwhile from this. He gives them ample opportunity to do something. And then we have this strange regard in verse 14, but his citizens hated him. His citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So this would be a picture of just how Jesus was received by Israel and by Israel's leaders in general. They hated him. And they didn't want him to be king. When he left, they wanted him to stay God. So he's got servants, and then he's got kind of the crowds. His servants are his people who follow him, who do his bidding, who listen to him, who respect him. And you've got the rest of the people who are just, nah, we don't care for this man. I don't want him to tell me what I can and cannot do. Verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And so what happens? What's the reaction what does the now king, the nobleman who has now received a kingdom, which means he is a king, what does he do? He said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. I mean, that's kind of, that's some pretty major authority. I mean, these aren't cities like New York City. Okay, you know, don't get it wrong. I mean, these are just small villages, but still. You're going to be the mayor of 10 cities. You're going to be the council, the mayor, the judge, the jury for 10 cities. You're going to run this place. You're going to be the manager of 10 cities. I mean, that's pretty legit. And then the second guy comes, verse 18, says, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. So we see that this king was generous in the first place. He had expectations in the first place, but when those expectations were shown to be met, even though he had given just a little from what he could have given, he saw the faithfulness of his servants, and he was overly generous in his response to them. He saw their faithfulness while he was away, and he said, here, I'm going to lavish upon you this great and awesome responsibility. I'm going to show that what you have done is no small thing. So this is a generous man. But then, verse 20, and this is what's really strange, and it comes our excuse. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. Now this kind of seems strange. So if you're reading it in this way, and you see already that this nobleman, this king, has been generous in the first place, and he's been doubly generous after he's returned to give authority over ten cities, authority over five cities, to say, I appreciate, servants, what you have done in my absence. 
be well rewarded for what you have done, for your faithfulness. Then we have this third guy, this third servant, who says basically the exact opposite. He says, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, reap what you did not sow. And so notice here, I don't know what your translation has, but in the ESV, I think it's appropriate. Notice the question mark at the end of verse 22. At least I have it here in the ESV. Let me read verse 22. And notice that this is a question mark at the end. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. If you read that as a question, as opposed to a statement, it's not that the king is agreeing with this wicked servant, with this third servant. He is questioning what he is saying. He says, you're calling me a liar? You're calling me a bad man? You're calling me an awful king? You're saying I'm not worthy? You're saying that I expect more than I should? It's a question. And he's saying, why would you think this? And if you did think this, why then, verse 23, why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And so underneath it, you can see that this king is saying, wait a second. If you really were actually trying and you really did hide away this money in your handkerchief, which I don't believe, right, is basically what he's saying. I don't believe this because it would have been safer in the bank and it would have been more worthwhile in the bank because you could have at least got interest from the bank, which oftentimes isn't the best, but it still is interest and it still would have been something. I would have gotten some return on my investment even if you hadn't actually done anything yourself with it. And so what it seems like is really happening is this guy is not being honest, this third servant is not being honest with what he has done in the time that the king has been away. He has not cared for the authority that he has been put under by this king. He has shown himself to be more like the crowd who said, we don't want this man to reign over us. than he has to be like the two other servants who came back and said, look, Lord, look, master, look, king, we have done what you've asked us to do as, as much as we could. I was more successful than this guy, but, you know, don't look at me. I, I was just trying to be faithful. And this is what ended up going on. And so... Notice the severity then of the judgment that the king pronounces. And this is where maybe there is some truth. Maybe he does know that there is some severity, this wicked servant. He does know that this man is not just beaten around the bush. He said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
And then to show himself to be really severe. But as for those enemies, as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That seems pretty harsh. So who is the king harsh toward? Those who had an opportunity to be faithful, who were given every reasonable expectation, opportunity to be faithful, and they weren't. And then the people who just in the first place never even gave him a chance, never even wanted him to be their Lord, never wanted him to be their king. And so you see that excuse that this servant gives. And you see the excuse that the crowd gives before they even allow for the kindness, the generosity, the love with which this king would have for the people who were under him. So bringing this back, now that maybe we've kind of walked through this parable and seen it for what it is, what does this have to do with Jesus and with Jesus' followers? When we look back at the beginning, we're told again, and, and this is for us, this is for Luke's readers. As Luke has ordered his gospel account and put this story in this position for a particular reason. He says again, his purpose, as they heard these things, which connects it with what just happened. Okay, so the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. So we'll get back to that in a second. He proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So when Luke's readers are reading this and trying to figure out, is this the point? I mean, because you think there's this buildup. There's this drama that's happened. There's the Old Testament that these people knew. There's this now account up through the beginning of chapter 19. Okay, is this the time when this guy who has been prophesied about in the Old Testament, who has been prophesied about at the beginning of Luke, who has grown and shown himself to be a mature boy, a mature young man, a mature adult, who has done all these miracles and proved himself to be who these prophecies say he is. He gives sight to the blind, the end of chapter 18. He listens because he's a good judge, unlike the unjust judge at the beginning of chapter 18. He heals people of their sicknesses, of lifelong sicknesses, of sicknesses that have lasted 12, 13 years. He expels demons from people. Is this now the man and the time when this kingdom of God will be established on this earth for all to see? No, this is not the time this is the man, but this is not the time. They suppose that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Don't be fooled into thinking that when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and when people say, 
I mean, we could go ahead and go through this. Verse 38 of chapter 19. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They, they expected this Jesus to set up his kingdom here and now, to ride into Jerusalem and to begin his conquest of the occupying Romans of the known world to establish his kingdom forever. But this is not what we should expect when we read this. And when we read this story, we should note how like these servants were given an expectation from the king that we then too, as God's people, as people who believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is who has been prophesied about, that Jesus really is a king, or he's going to be a king, what are we supposed to do then? What is the expectation that Jesus has on us? And the expectation, I think most simply, that Jesus has on us, his people, is not just to engage in business and build all the wealth that we can. The purpose and for why we exist as Christians, as God's people on this earth, is not just to be a capitalist society who gains as much wealth as we can in whatever way we deem necessary. Primarily, the focus now, the business that we are supposed to be busy doing, is how he ended the story of Zacchaeus. Remember, look at verse 11. As they heard these things, so coming straight from this, and Luke, having come straight from recorded, recording the tale of Jesus and Zacchaeus, how does that tale end? Verse, verses 9 and 10. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them this parable. The business that we are to be about as Christians is the business that Jesus himself was about, seeking and saving the lost. Our business is not to make as much money as we can, is for God to give us three months worth of wages and then somehow magically turn that into, you know, 30 months worth of wages or 15 months worth of wages. That's not the point. That is reading it a little bit too literally. The point, as we see the flow of Luke's gospel here, is for us to see that we do have a job to do that there is a business that we are to be busy about doing. And that business that we are to be busy about doing is seeking and saving the lost. We're not the ones who can save them. But we know the king who can. We can't fully seek them out. We can't fully delve into the deepest depths of their heart and their soul. But we can go to our neighbors. We can go to our friends. We can go to our coworkers. We can 
go to the people in our sphere and say, have you heard about this king who is going to come back, who came in the first place to conquer sin and death, but then he's going to finally and fully do away with all of that when he returns. And so there is a glimpse that we are able to gain of who Jesus is and what he has done and the power of such things. But the full power and the full display of it is not yet before us. And so we are asked, we are tasked with inviting people, seeking them out as much as we can to give them the truth so that then God would open up their eyes to see and their ears to hear, that they might see and hear and understand the gospel, that they might be saved, that they might find themselves to be then servants who actually want God's rule over their lives. But the problem is we are surrounded by the crowd, by the other people in town who say, we don't want this man to rule over us. This is, I mean, this is the citizens, the general population. This is the same general population that we're around now. These people don't want God to rule over them. They don't want Christ to be their king. Jesus has come and shown himself to be a worthwhile king, a worthwhile master, a master who loves us, who has given his life for us, who has paid the debt that we could not pay, who lived the life that we couldn't live, who went in our place to the cross. A man who gave of himself for you and for me. And they say, we don't want this guy. Because they don't want to acknowledge the fact that someone is Lord over them. They don't want to acknowledge the fact that there is sin in their life. They don't want to acknowledge the fact that they're not their own Lord and Master. And that there is someone who they have to give an account to at some point whether now or in some further off day. And so in the midst of this crowd of people, these citizens, the general populace, as it were, we are told, you, servant of the king, who trusts him, who believes him, who has received from him even now, eternal life. You are now to seek out and save the lost. You are to seek out and to spread the truth of the gospel so that the Spirit of God might do a work. It can be difficult for us to think that we do have to do all the work. And I think instead of seeing it that way, instead of seeing that I've got to do all the work to seek and to save, 
I would encourage you to read John chapters 13 through 17. Notice that Jesus, when he leaves to go receive his kingdom, when he goes to sit back on his throne before he returns to establish his kingdom once and for all, forever, on this earth, in this world, he has sent us a helper, the Holy Spirit. He has not left us without something to guide us, something to benefit us, something to prepare us, something to build us up. He has given us his spirit. So what has Jesus given to us now today, his servants, 2,000 years after this parable was said, after it was recorded? He's given us his spirit. And what is expected from us is as that spirit produces fruit in us, it also produces more disciples because we can do nothing but exclaim and proclaim the excellencies of him who saved us, of the king who we know to be gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that there will be a judgment for those who do not acknowledge the king as king, who do not acknowledge God as God, who want themselves to be their own rulers. This, I hope we can see, is a parable that is all too similar to our lives today even though it's coached in strange language and terms and imagery. We are called to be these servants who are faithful. We have, called, we have been called to be faithful. He doesn't say, oh, good servant. Oh, yeah, you made me ten, ten times what I gave you. Because you've produced so much, I'm going to love you that much more. He says, you've been faithful, and I barely gave you anything. From what I have, you've shown yourself to be faithful, and I think that's still what God desires from us, is faithfulness. And when we're faithful, we are going to be fruitful. And so what we need to be praying for, for ourselves, for this church, is that we are a people who are faithful, that we are a people who through our faithfulness are producing fruit in our own lives and seeing fruit be born in the kingdom of God also by bringing other people into the truth, into the loving care of a God who has sent his son to love us, to love us enough to die in our place, and to give us eternal life. This is what we proclaim. This is what we have to look forward to when we have been faithful and the Spirit has borne fruit in our lives and we've seen other people come to faith through our testimony about Jesus and about what he has done for us and for them.
This is then when God says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. This is who he's called us to be. If we're not willing to be this, then we just make ourselves to have never really fully understood him in the first place. Like this third servant, this wicked servant. And this is a constant battle that we have, I know. I have it myself. To think, is God truly worth it? Is this man truly, is this God truly loving? Is he gracious? Is he merciful? Does he know what's best? Because that's what my flesh fights against my spirit, saying, God doesn't know what's best for you in this circumstance. God's severe. He's not worth catering to. He's not worth listening to. Our flesh fights us. And so we've been called to see the king for who he truly is, not to be swayed by the opinions of others, by the hatred of others, by our own flesh, our own desires, our own temptations, but to trust him. And in trusting him, to be faithful to him. We can do this by the power of his blood, as we sang earlier, because he lives, as we sang earlier. I can face tomorrow because he lives. Every fear can be gone because he lives. What I know and what I hold on to is that he holds my life and my future in his hands. And when I live according to this, it changes my perspective. And all of a sudden the king's expectation upon me doesn't need to be met with an excuse. It can be met with open arms. It can be met with excitement that my king loves me. Is this what you believe? Is this how you live? I pray it is. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for our time together. Thank you for being able to gather to read about your love toward us, to read about your generosity, your faithfulness, your promises that do come true, that you will return, that we have that to look forward to. When our faith will become sight, God, help us in the meantime to be faithful, to trust you, and to lead others to find true peace that can only be found in you. God, would your spirit guide us and help us in these matters as we seek to be a faithful people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.